The court-appointed shrink, Eeyore, focuses exclusively on Ben now. I take my son for an appointment and ask if I should join them. I'm told no, the door closing in my face. I scroll texts in the lobby, and Ben's session lasts a half hour longer than scheduled. In the car, I tentatively ask how it went. Ben smiles. He's got a parrot. Leon. I know. Maybe we'll get a parrot. I sigh while changing lanes on Queens Boulevard. I don't know, buddy. It's hard. I've got to go to work and... Ben shakes his head. No, I mean us. Me and Mommy and Casper and the new baby. Maybe we'll get a parrot for our house. So you won't tell me about the sex? demands Paco. I'm fucking licensed! I say no, but my smile speaks volumes. He nods. My friend, if you've got the head, the heart, and the fun zone, then in the relationship game, you won first prize. About that night, we left Ring of Fire and went to Gina's place. It was like something out of a 1970s movie. We tore off clothes and threw them where they landed. No need for details, other than to acknowledge it was a more than memorable 36 hours. It was one of those weekends when you forget to eat. In fact, at one point, Gina said she forgot how to walk and joked about being bow-legged. The only time we interrupted the festivities was to call our kids on Saturday morning. By that evening, I finally realized I hadn't consumed anything since Friday afternoon and then had engaged in intense and vigorous athletic activity, as well as winning a boxing match. And so we called her local pizza joint and they delivered. I would soon come to learn just how much food Gina could pack into that curvy little frame of hers. We ate standing up in the kitchen, savagely tearing out sections of the triangular slices in odd trapezoidal fashion, sauce dripping onto our chins and chests as we giggled and wiped at each other. Then we finally decided to scrub up and took a shower together. Before it was over, we were back in bed, still damp. We worshipped each other's bodies, heaping praise and complimenting every nuance and quirk. When she first unbuckled my jeans and got past those stupid green trunks, she pretended she was davening like a rabbi and whispered praise. Ta-da, Lord! And when I finally beheld her in her glorious natural state, I channeled a Texas evangelist and cried out, Oh, thank you, dear sweet baby Jesus! But beneath the joking was the oh-so-sweet recognition we truly appreciated each other and we both know what it's like not to be appreciated. In between, we shared our life stories. Besides her mom, she had an older sister, Sharon, with a husband and two kids in New Jersey, and a younger sister, Rachel, who's in graduate school in Boston, studying interior design. Gina grew up in Forest Hills, but spent two years at Tulane University, not because she loved the school, but because she always wanted to live in New Orleans and at 18 figured now was the time. She dropped out at 20 when her father was killed in an airplane crash of all things. I had my arm wrapped tightly around her, staring at the ceiling, and she was speaking softly into my chest when she told me this. 
I gently asked a few particulars and was surprised it rang no bells, but later I looked up the accident in the National Transportation Safety Board database. He had connected on a regional airline in Detroit to attend a medical supply convention in Rochester, Minnesota, and they went down in thick fog. Pilot error. Gina was devastated and spent a year at her mom's smoking pot and watching TV. It wasn't until later, while researching her father's death, that it hit me. This is the same woman who wanted to take me to Charlie Victor Romeo, the play about fatal plane crashes? She has a way of surprising me. Afterwards, she spent a year in Maryland, where she discovered she loved teaching when she volunteered with AmeriCorps. Thank you for your service, I said, and she punched me in the arm. Eventually, she enrolled in Queens College and began working for the cruise line. Then she married a friend of a friend, and along came Ashley. Gina plays folk guitar really well. She loves Indian food, but not lamb and never goat. Her right eye is just slightly larger than her left. In fact, this type of asymmetry is duplicated in another area of her anatomy. Like me, she loves the Beatles, but unlike me, she also listens to Kanye. And yeah, I learned she's one hell of a pole dancer. The girls at the club taught her during breaks. That tattoo near her navel is her only one. She's afraid of clowns and plans to write in Bernie Sanders in November. When I make her laugh very, very hard, a snot bubble will grow right out of her nostril. Her favorite novel is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Like me, she recently started bike riding again. And like me, she never uses Uber or visits Walmart. Unfortunately, Gina occasionally roots tepidly for the Yankees, but I'll address that. Her pinky toes are extra small, a trait the internet claims indicates playfulness. She's a terrible driver and not much of a cook. Now I'm more deeply in love with her than I've ever been with anyone in my life, though I haven't told her. But I did tell Paco. A funny thing happened early on Sunday morning. We were sleeping, finally, and suddenly I jolted upright because I thought I heard Ben. For a moment, I envisioned us waking up to see Ben and Ashley entering our bedroom. This is the life I want to give Ben, roots and stability and consistency. As for me, without my son, there is no family. By the time I left to get Ben later that morning, the world had shifted yet again. Only this time, it wasn't due to Eli Lilly and Company's most famous antidepressant. One week later, I came for dinner and met Ashley, along with Gina's mother, who told me to be thankful she cooked. After we dug into the strudels I brought from Junior's, both apple and cheese, Gina told her daughter, I talk to airplanes and they talk to me. Ashley shook her head and told us we're silly, since airplanes can't talk. Later, she let me read to her from one of her favorite books, Priscilla McDoodlenut Doodle McMay Asks Why. I felt a twinge when I saw the author was bestowed the Mom's Choice Award, but I let it go. Later, I showed it to Gina and told her there are too many battles and not enough resources to fight every single fight. 
Within weeks, I met both sisters, although Rachel will always be my favorite since she turned to Gina and said, You're right. He does have cute blue eyes. Days later, Gina met Ben at the park, and together the two of them beat me at wiffle ball when both runs scored while I pretended to stare at a 747 approaching JFK. After Ben fell asleep, I watched her gently brush his hair from his eyes. Gina met various other Mullins in short order, even my father, whose behavior was exemplary. Later, it was my mother who shocked me. After calling Ashley a little doll and Gina a very sweet girl, she added, and she's got some cute little figure on her. Yeah, I responded nonchalantly. I guess so. Oh, come on, said Eileen Mullen. She could be one of those exotic dancers. Katie laughed a little too hard until she caught my death stare. Surprisingly, it was Katie who came around last. There's no doubt she's vicariously gun-shy on my behalf. But to her credit, the first meeting between Ben and Ashley took place when Katie invited us for brunch, which went so well, Gina and I laughed in relief. Ben was quite solicitous of the baby and even helped her poke a straw into her juice box. Afterwards, he and I aligned chairs in the living room to play our favorite game, airplane. Ben is always captain, and I'm always on his right as first officer. But this time, I suggested Ashley be the captain and Ben be first officer. I could be the flight attendant serving Chris, the passenger. Ben considered this and asked, Can you do that? Isn't that a lady? I explained both boys and girls can be flight attendants as well as captains. My shoulders tensed as I feared the worst. But Ben just nodded and sat to Ashley's right, showing her how the non-existent controls work. I heard later from both parties what Katie and Gina discussed during all this. My sister brought her another mimosa, and they chatted about Katie doing voiceover on a video for Gina's students, then joked about the movie trope that two women can't discuss any topic other than a man. Finally, Katie said, Can I ask you something? Gina nodded. Mike sort of told me about warning you. I mean, his life being a mess. The thing is, it's all true. I know. Yeah, well, he's in such a bad place. It's not just the psychotic bitch from hell, but all of it. His job, the debt, the depression. I mean, five years ago, five years from now, who knows? But right now, this guy's in the worst place in his life. Gina nodded. I know, but in a weird way, that's good, no? How's that? Well, relationships, they're sort of like job interviews. In the beginning, you know, you never really know about someone until stuff happens. Gina watched me pouring imaginary orange juice. I've seen this man at his absolute worst. Katie watched too. See, I'm Mikey's biggest fan, even though he can be a pain in my ass. So I get him. But he is in the middle of a shit show now, Gina. He's broke and he's battered, hurting. Who knows what that judge is going to do, how he'll take it. So I'm going to ask you, no offense at all, 
But, I mean, why him? I mean, why now? Gina laughed and pointed at me as the game transitioned from airplane to a new game Chris invented, Air Rage. She pretended to throw imaginary juice on my imaginary uniform while I called on the imaginary intercom for Captain Ashley and First Officer Benji to turn this plane around at once and begged Katie to be an air marshal. Are you kidding? Gina asked. Just look. You can look at that man with those two kids and just ask me why I'm freaking crazy about him? Apparently... That's when Katie hugged her. Ben ran off to be an air marshal. It's been a year since I've gotten another missive in my mailbox from the cowardly, illiterate cretin. I've almost missed them. What I don't know is Bob M. spotted the individual in the act and promptly told this person if it happens again, he would personally sign the transfer to Minot, North Dakota in January. Once again, I need to deliver a certified check to Hillary, or once again, my attorneys will cease working my case. Ben joins me for the subway ride into Manhattan. In the elevator on Lexington Avenue, I lift him so he can press the button for the 19th floor. Then we discuss, at length, why there's no 13th floor. A young woman turns and thanks us, saying she's always wondered about it. Ben and I chat with the receptionist as we wait for Hillary. And now it hits me. My attorney and I have been at war together across four years, fighting on three continents and logging endless emails and phone calls and court appearances, recording defeats and victories and more defeats, all to the tune of about $400,000. But ironically enough, Hillary has never even met Ben. The MacGuffin, the Holy Grail, the pot of gold, the infant issue, the brass ring. Hillary emerges and says hello, then realizes I'm not alone. Her face breaks into a smile as she leans down. And who is this? I pat his head. The fruit of the marriage. It's our second play date this week. On Wednesday, my off day, I sent Gina a dozen red roses using a new credit card. And when she called in shock, I quietly explained I knew it was the anniversary of her dad's crash. She seemed speechless and quickly hung up. Then, an hour later, she called from the park. While the kids napped in the back seat, I tried teaching her parallel parking for her upcoming road test and we promptly had our first spat. I shouted she was going to take off the damn fender, and she shouted, I should chill the hell out. For several seconds, I thought, well, that's that, another doomed relationship. Then we stared at each other and burst out laughing. Later, I helped her devise essay questions for To Kill a Mockingbird. Now it's Saturday, and we're at Gina's apartment. We had such a great day. The sprinklers, followed by dinner and a themed evening, frozen yogurt coupled with a viewing of Frozen. Ben was told it was a girl's movie by Jeffrey and Daycare, so we had a chat about movies not having genders. It's late, 
and both kids have stayed up past their bedtimes. With Ben, that means heavy eyelids and gradually nodding off. But apparently with Ashley, it means a total meltdown. Gina gets her into pajamas, but she cries and cries, and nothing, not a Caillou DVD, not rocking, nothing can ease those tears. Ben catches my eye and shrugs as if to say, kids, what can you do? Gina apologizes, and I tell her, don't be silly. Let me have a try, I say, picking up Ashley and holding her in a cradle lift while gently preventing her legs from kicking. She grows limp, and then I sing, but at first it's so soft it's more like whispering. I sing Jersey Girl. Initially, she fights me, but eventually those small eyes flicker and then close, and I walk slowly toward her bedroom. Gina and Ben follow us as I continue singing. I know from small kids faking sleep, and she's out for good now, but still, I won't chance it. Better to finish the job. I keep singing. I'm rocking where I stand, while Gina tries to slow dance with Ben, softly so as not to wake the baby. But he boards quickly and scoots back into the living room. Gina joins me on the sha-la-la-la-la-la. Then, ever so gently, she lowers the safety bar, and I ease myself onto the tiny toddler bed beside Ashley. I move her into place and pull the covers up to her chin and smooth her hair. Now I can stop singing. But I turn and see Ashley's mom is kneeling beside the bed, her face just inches from mine. I smile at her and suddenly notice she's crying, big wet tears. Before I can react, she grabs my face with both hands and pulls it toward her own, resting her forehead on mine. You have no idea how much I love you, she whispers. Hey, I whisper back, that's against the rules. The dude's supposed to drop the L word first. She vigorously shakes her head, spraying tears on both of us. Uh-uh, there's a loophole. If the dude is a geeky dork who talks to airplanes and sends red roses for the sweetest reason, then the chick gets to say it first. I smile and kiss a tear. Well, good to know. Cause I really, really love you. And I realize even now that just as Molly Malone belongs to Ben, from here on in, Jersey Girl will belong to Ashley. Though never, of course, will I include the verse about dropping that little brat of yours off at your mom's. But I'll sing this song forever. And I'll whisper it into the ear of a sweet young woman at her wedding after she's asked to dance with her father. I'm at work when I receive the email from Hillary advising me the state of New York is ready to decide the fate, yet again, of one Benjamin Cohen Mullen. I'm to be in court Thursday afternoon for the decision. On my break, I spot Mo on the 14th floor and tell him. He says he hopes I win. I thank him, but add that since the beginning... I've always fought for Ben to win so he could have both parents in his life. Mo says, I understand. Then he winks, 
may the best man win. I'll admit, the sudden emergence of such happy times with Ben and Gina and Ashley has me dreaming in ways I haven't allowed myself to dream in a very long time. The words of the Jersey Turnpike man chill me, yet I nurse hope that somehow, somehow, Ben and I will be together. And not just every other weekend, or two out of every 14 nights, raising a seventh of a child, but I've learned dreaming can be dangerous. And now, it's just my son and me. It's a summer of concepts, but this is a difficult concept for us to work out together. What will our future be? I've played it absolutely high road, and never once did I discuss with Ben where he might want to live, or suggest what he might want to say to the lawyers and shrinks. Now it's time to ask. Buddy, we need to talk. He's had his bath and is in fresh summer pajamas. We've moved the Thomas the Tank Engine train board into his room, and he's on his knees sorting tracks. I sit on the edge of the bed, looking down at his back. We gotta talk. Okay. Ben doesn't look up. I cough. Tomorrow, well, Mommy and I are going to court. The judge is going to tell us about where you'll live. I know. You know? Yep. My lawyer said so. I regroup. Uh, Okay, well, they're going to want to know what you want. And I know. I told them. He turns to me. Daddy, how come the bridge isn't glued? Uh, You got the bridge later. Uh, After Christmas. Oh, he turns back to the board. Again, I cough. Uh, So, you told them what you want? Yep. Daddy, can we move the bridge near the tunnel? See? Uh, Maybe. uh, If you move the Sodor crane. Yeah. I watched him deftly rearrange his little world. Uh, So, uh, buddy, you already decided. I mean what you want, where you want to live. He continues working while speaking. I told the men with Leon the parrot and my lawyer, I have to live with mommy. Time passes, but I don't know how much. Outside, it's late evening and late summer, my favorite time as a kid, and birds are still chatting. I remain seated, perfectly still, Ben slips in new tracks, continually testing configurations. Finally, I summon my livelihood, my voice. You have to live with mommy? Uh Uh-huh. She said so. I have to help with the baby. She said she can't have the baby without me. I have to help her. I move both hands to my face unnecessarily, since Ben remains wrapped. My own breathing sounds amplified. I prepare to speak again. So, um, that's what... I pause. That's what you told them? You want to live with mommy? Uh Uh-huh. 
He attempts to squeeze both tunnel and bridge into place, but something will have to give, and it won't be the laws of physics. Buddy, are you okay? I mean, did it make you sad, you know, having to, to choose? And now Ben turns to me, all blue eyes and blonde hair and baby teeth that will fall out and grow back in again. He smiles at me. I told them it's okay. I can't speak any longer, so I nod instead. I told them, I said, my daddy always comes to see me, everywhere. So I'll live with my mommy, cause you'll come see us, no matter where we live. So you'll be happy. Everybody will be happy. You'll come see me, daddy, right? All I can do is, is nod again, vigorously. Daddy, I open my eyes wider as a form of response. Will you help me with the bridge? Most of the time, the thing we fear more than anything never appears, thankfully. The 18-wheeler doesn't jackknife in the rain. The missiles remain in their silos. The mole turns out to be just a mole. But sometimes our very worst fear takes shape and breathes and appears right before us, staring in defiance. My fear of fears that my son and I won't share his childhood on a daily basis, well, here it is, in full force, just as I always knew. The only emotion I don't feel is surprise. My voice is sort of a gurgle from a poorly dubbed movie as I blurt out, Be right back! Now I'm running toward the bathroom, and I do what I never do when Ben is in the house. I not only close the door, but even lock it. I flush the toilet, then run water into the sink at full volume. Finally, I bury my face into the nearest bath towel. Somehow, I slump onto the side of the tub, undoubtedly causing the bruise on my lower back I don't feel now, but will discover tomorrow. I sob, and I sob, and I sob, screaming in pain into the wet towel, smelling Toy Story 3 bubble bath, even as I suffocate as many emotions as I can. I hear tapping on the door and mumble, I'll be right out. All the other pains up until now, it's as if they were just preparation, like the jabs and crosses setting up that knockout of a hook. And I have to make a decision, not at my leisure, not after consultation and reflection. I need to decide right now. I need to decide what kind of man I'm going to be immediately. Ever since I was six years old, I've wondered if I was capable of charging into a blazing room to save a child I never met. But courage takes so many, many forms and extracts so many, many tolls. I'll probably never know, but I do know this child, and I'm determined to do all I can to save his sanity and nurture his robust little soul. Later, Annabelle will explain I was battling seven million years of Oedipal complexes, but that's too simplistic. Ben has proven to be the wisest, 
of the many allegedly wise people considering his fate. He is offering judgment by serving as his own Solomon, and he is handing the sword to me, not his mother. Soon, Paco will observe, I've received the greatest compliment a child can bestow, the gift of complete and utter trust. You'll come to see me, Daddy, right? And so now the court battle is over. It doesn't matter what those in power will tell us tomorrow, and it doesn't matter whether they're honest or corrupt. I've stopped fighting, because, as always, I'm squarely on Ben's side. Fathers and sons. Daddy, I rub my face raw with the minion's bath towel and see my eyes are red and my hair is rumpled. Yeah, I yell. Daddy, I unlatch the door and see him standing before me. Daddy, are you sad? No, I croak. Tired. He smiles and pulls me by the hand. It's late, but we spend five minutes tending to the train board. Then, while Ben brushes his teeth, I scan his bookshelf. He returns and casually leans against me, his arm around my back. Can I pick tonight? I ask. Ben nods, and I hold up. We're very good friends, my father and I. Ben is asleep before we finish. I don't sleep at all. I put on my court suit, which is a little baggy now, but the process is much less formal than I envisioned. The judge and even her assistant are absent, and the law guardian simply hands out typed copies of the decision to both parties, right in the hallway outside the restrooms. I flip to the final page. Therefore, the duly appointed law guardian, in accordance with the wishes of the child, recommends the court award joint custody with the mother as custodial parent. I pull Hillary into an empty conference room and tell her I won't appeal. She registers complete shock and begins citing mitigating factors. I shake my head. She tells me to sleep on it. I tell her not to reveal this to the other side, and instead, bluff for now. We step outside, confronted by the defendant. To my complete surprise, she speaks to me. Don't forget, Benji is with me tonight. We'll pick him up at six.